Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, hello, hello. How you doing? This is a bit of an experiment. Yeah, I don't know why I decided to do this, but um, I just thought shake it up a bit. This is, I used to do, so I used to do this video channel for The Guardian, and so they get rid of it, which we won't go into. Um, but um, what I used to do with, oh dear, I'm using the wrong one. That's a good start. There we go. Sorry, everyone. I'm now using the correct microphone. Uh, yeah, I used to do these videos responding to um, comments uh, left by you, you guys, well, some of you. Um, and it, it worked really well because it was more of a back and forth, all the rest of it. And we do do that, obviously, in the live shows when we have our guests. But um, I just thought instead of having a guest and having a chat with them today, what we do is just let you, let you decide. People just caught, mentioning my hoodie, by the way, I'm not just running, wearing a random hoodie. I'm actually wearing, so this is the Independent Workers of Great Britain. It's a trade union. Uh, I was at their 10th anniversary last night. Uh, they represent very precarious workers, often disproportionately migrant workers, who are some of the most exploited um, in the world and uh, in, in, in this country. Um, and they've had 10 years of organising. They've won these massive victories. Um, so uh, do look up the RWDB and support their work. Um, I've written lots of articles about them organising. For example, university workers, cleaners, um, often, as I've said, the most precarious workers in the country. Um, what do I think of Sonic the Hedgehog? So the way this is going to work is I will go through some of the comments. We've already had lots of comments, so I will check those. One of them says, John Smith, could you please be quiet? Don't have to, don't have to tune in, John. <laughs> you don't, it's not compulsory. It's not like you're obliged to tune into the show. Um, what I'll do is there's been loads of comments already. Um, I will prioritize super chats. Um, so if you're watching live, if you click on YouTube and then press, um, you can use Super Chats because that supports the show. So that makes sense. Um, but we've had lots of chats. So it's about, you know, politics um, generally. If we try and keep it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, so let's have a look here. For example, Benjamin Williams. Do you think a... Oh, sorry. I forgot to say. Do support us on Patreon.com forward slash owenjoes84. Uh, press press like and subscribe. We've got we're doing daily videos basically at the moment. Um, but I think one of the things that'd be interesting if you leave comments like what sort of stuff would you like us to do? Who would you like us to talk to? That kind of thing. Because obviously we're doing it as a daily thing at the moment. Thanks to your support on patreoncom Right. What do you think a Keir Starmer Labour government would actually look like? Should we on the soft left or further left have any hope other than it being better than the Tories? Oh dear. Um, so, oh, well, the next one, because as I've said, I prioritize super chat, so I'll come on to Andy Burnham. 
Yeah, so today, um, the front page of the Daily Telegraph, let me just bring this up. I should have actually maybe dropped it. We should have dropped it as an image. Oh, it's too late now. Labour vows war on health unions. That's the front page of the Sunday Telegraph. Yeah, so in the moment, Labour's position is to go crawling to right-wing rags to trash unions representing NHS staff. Um, they're refusing to offer a real-terms pay increase, and they're talking about expanding the role of the private sector in the National Health Service. But guys, they did clap NHS staff. Oh, hello, Rickman. They did clap NHS staff very, very enthusiastically. So let's not let's not suggest they don't care. One thing's interesting. So Wes Streeting is doing a round at the moment where he's that, these are the lines he's going for. He's being very, very much take. You know, we're going to face down the British Medical Association, etc., which represents GPs and so on. Is they're talking about the biggest recruitment of NHS staff ever, which obviously is welcome. I don't think they're going to achieve that unless they deal with the pay crisis that nurses on average have lost 8% of their pay since 2010. Um, that has a massive problem on recruitment and retention. And I don't think going to war with, I mean, look, should a, should, should the Labour Party be going to war with unions? It's not, it's not a great start, is it? Um, but in terms of a demoralised workforce, this kind of tub-thumping we're going to face down unions representing workers who've been screwed over and carried this country through the pandemic. Doesn't sit well, does it? It doesn't look great. Now, just, I mean, in terms of what a Labour government is going to look like, well, I mean, I did a video about this the other week because every time I criticise Keir Starmer, I do most of my videos about the Conservatives because they're the government. Makes sense. But I do scrutinise the opposition because they're the government in waiting. They're almost certainly going to win the next election. Um... And people often feel my mentions going, oh, still going to vote for them. Are you still taking everyone to vote for them? I don't actually tell people to vote Labour. My position for a long time now has been vote for who the hell you want. It's not for me to start um, telling people to go and vote for the Labour Party in their current incarnation. I've said when I'm asked um, that my own position is um, that I think... Firstly, the only left representation we have is through the Labour Party in the form of the left-wing MPs, people like John McDonnell or Zawa Sultana or Nadia Whittam. Um, and if they left the Labour Party because of our electoral system, we'd lose our left representation. The union link means that you do get, for example, promises on various policies which aren't good enough, but they're better than the Conservatives. But my main point is actually that I think a Labour government will raise expectations in the midst of social crisis not like 1997, when the country wasn't in this massive crisis in the same way. And then it will disappoint them. And that's when you'll get these movements that come into play. Because at the moment, the problem we've got with any movements is, or putting pressure on the Labour Party to not be crap, is you remember the pandemic, you had that kind of rally around the government effect. It's, it's often called the rally around the flag effect in a crisis. Well, a similar phenomenon happens with the opposition, the Labour opposition, when people are desperate to get rid of the Conservatives. Because what people do is they go into a mentality, we've got to get the Tories out at all costs, which is completely understandable and, and I empathise with. But that means that people see the opposition as a life raft and they think to themselves, well, I don't want to rock the life raft. Um, and that makes it harder to criticise Labour in opposition because people think, well, we need to get rid of the Tories. Why are you criticising Labour? So even if they're like, Labour's going to announce their King Herod policy and they're going to kill the firstborn. Yeah, I mean, people go, well, leave Labour alone. We need to get rid of the Tories. Yeah. Um, so I think when they come into government, they'll do a lot of unpopular things and then they're the government and it's much easier to criticise them and galvanise movements against it. That's my own view. 
Um, and, sorry, the camera keeps shaking because Kim, my other cat, is sitting on the table. But I don't know what to do. I just let him let him have it. So I just think, yeah, I think my view is that you get more. It's not like New Labour in, in 1997. I keep making this point where you had you didn't have the social turmoil that we have today. Um, so they did mild tinkering. Policies that did make a difference, let's not besmirch it. I mean, the minimum wage, tax credits, expanding public investment. They undermine it with things like privatisation, PFI, the Iraq war, which hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Um, failing to deal with a city running riot, didn't that didn't end well. Um, so, you you know, like, they did, but they came to power when living standards were going up and there was growth because of a financial bubble that went... It's not the same when they come to power in this context. So, yeah, that's my view um, on... I just think it'll be easier to build pressure and momentum, how I say it. And I think I totally appreciate people don't trust the Labour Party with a barge pole. Totally appreciate and understand that. But I think it's helpful that there are people in the Labour Party, including left-wing MPs, and then you get movements outside the Labour Party and then they can work in tandem when you get a Labour government. That's how I see it. And I think these people at the moment, you see people who run the Labour Party are quite triumphalist. They're like, oh, we're geniuses. Look at this polling lead that we've managed to do because of what we did. They didn't do any of it, though. It's the Tories destroyed themselves completely. Nothing Labour has done has anything to do with the Tory um, poll collapse. Just, it just, I'm sorry. I mean, I know there are people for partisan reasons who pretend that it's because people love Keir Starmer and Starmer mania is sweeping Britain. But that's not happening. There's very little enthusiasm for Keir Starmer. Again, very different from 1997. There was enthusiasm for Tony Blair. Um, I mean, look how that panned out. But I mean, there was at the time. There isn't for Keir Starmer. Um, and I think they're triumphalists now, but they're going to collide with reality. And I think, however dominant and hegemonic they seem now, politics can shift on a sixpence. Um, what do I think of uh, Andy Burnham ask here in Buckley? Sorry, I'll be a bit quick with these now because there's all these super chats coming in. What's my opinion on um, Andy Burnham? I think quite fascinating, Andy Burnham, because Andy Burnham originally, I think, would have been considered kind of new labourery. He was a new Labour advisor. He was part of the whole generation. People like Yvette Cooper they were, and Ed Miliband, they were all kind of special advisors around the new Labour, new Labour milieu. When he was Shadow Health Secretary under Ed Miliband, he became, became seen as kind of the, like the darling of the soft left. Um, and because he was Shadow Health Secretary, um, you know, that's the way, well, I was going to say the way to Labour members' hearts, but then look at what we're streeting, saying and doing. <laughs> But at the time, you know, because Labour people are very proud, obviously, of the National Health Service. If you've got a Labour health secretary, then, you know, um, they can appeal to Labour members. So he was seen as the obvious successor to Ed Miliband at the time. But what he did after the 2015 election defeat is um, he basically accepted at the time a kind of let's hurtle off to the right position. Um, his campaign... Uh, manager was Michael Duggar, who's a kind of farcically awful person, um, in my opinion, um, who now is a lobbyist for like gambling firms. <laughs> Lovely. Um, but, you know, just like a really, just like this Labour right winger, not a fan, um, of a certain type, quite aggressive macho type types, you know, kind of like Malcolm Tucker wannabes. Anyway, that he ran the campaign and they... They that allowed for the rise of Jamie Corbyn because Andy Burnham was seen as just hurling off to the right. Um, he didn't stick to where he originally kind of had cultivated this kind of soft left image. Um, 
But I think what's interesting is I do think he regrets that a lot. Um, and I think he he's more of a Labour guy than Keir Starmer, if that makes sense. Like he's got more of a, a Labour a labor worldview, Labour movement perspective. Um, I don't agree. Obviously, I'm not from his political tra- tradition, so I would have clear differences with him um, in terms of his leadership. But I think it would be so much more palatable than this. I think he would have a, a, a much clearer progressive vision. I think he would have clear red lines. I don't think Keir Starmer believes in anything um, meaningful. I don't think he's got big red lines. I think he will say anything if he thinks it will get him power. And I think Andy Burnham, notwithstanding his past, where he made, I think, quite a big strategic mistake, uh, clearly, I think anyone couldn't see he did. Um, but I think actually he, um, I think he would be a much, he would provide more space. I don't think there'd be this relentless war on the left that we see, this attempt to just wage war on progressive ideas and policies. I don't think under Andy Burnham, you'd have a shadow health secretary going on about increasing private sector involvement and facing down the unions in the health sector. Don't think that would happen. So I think, yeah, I'd prefer him. I'd settle is what I'm saying. He's a nice guy. I like the guy on a personal level. He's very, like a very charming, decent guy. Um, Okay. Uh, Oh, sorry. I'm going to, I will thank everyone at the end for their uh, super chats as well. Uh, Thank you, Fraser McKinnon. Uh, Thank you to Anva Buzalgo. I've not said that right. Have I? Um, Oh, interesting. Oh dear, this is going to get me. This is Avna Buzalgo. What do you think of adopting street cats versus buying pure blood clots? I did say that I would prioritize um, super chats. I'm not going to... Okay, I did... Look, the most champagne socialist thing you could probably... Or one of them you could level against me is I got two Burmese cats, um, which are a breed rather than mogs. I grew up with a mog called Conan. He was like a semi-long hair, black little little white under there, little white paws. He died 10 years ago. Very sweet cat. Uh, But I did get two Burmese cats. The reason we got Burmese cats, um, which you do have to pay for, um, so uh, is because um, they're just so friendly. And I just wanted to get two really friendly cats who are like, you know, kind of puppies uh, because they behave like puppies. Um, And I just, yeah, maybe I do think people should, you know, getting street cats, that is people who do that's a great thing to do i would go say it's like with kids though it's like people who adopt that's a brilliant thing to do but i don't know if you should end up in a situation where anyone who doesn't adopt is seen as i don't know that's probably not compared to humans isn't probably a good idea yeah I, I mean i do think adopting street cats people should do that far more and i'm sorry that i got two burmese cats basically i don't know where to go with that um thanks to uh okay hold on Joe casto here we go someone else sorry I need to scroll through these um fraser mckinnon uh, again oh hey fraser why didn't i do a stream on scotland and scottish independence is there anything you like scottish government is doing i did the other week Oh, I did do a stream on it. I did a video on it. Basically, on the Jeremy Vine show, I did a... Um, we talked about Scottish independence, and I supported the right of Scotland to have an independence referendum. And my view is it's like divorce. The right to divorce doesn't mean you think everyone should get divorced, but you believe everyone should have the right to get divorced. If you have a relationship where one person goes, well, I want to break up with you, and the other's like, well, you can't. <laughs> you don't have a say in the issue. And... um you know, my view with the Scottish independence referendum is circumstances have changed since 2014, notably the promises on Brexit. Well, they were told the only way to stay in the EU was to 
to vote to stay, uh, to stay in, in, in the United Kingdom. That didn't work very well, did it? No, it didn't. Uh, so now they're, you know, you, you can, you know, that's a change in circumstance. And also the polling shows there is actually a large appetite for an independence referendum and for independence. You know, look, you know, my mum lives in Edinburgh. She's not going to vote for independence. I've got other family members who are going to vote for independence. A lot of my family live in Scotland. Um, and so I appreciate just from that basis, people's different perspectives. Um, and I understand why people, obviously, you know, their view is they support independence because they're sick of being in a union where in Scotland, the last time Scotland voted for the Conservatives was 1955, but they end up with the consequences of it. And they also get pissed off with the form of Labour. That's often offer, on offer at Westminster. A lot of people in Scotland, you know, the rot set in with new Labour in terms of, how the SNP could lay the foundations to become so hegemonic in Scotland. You know, I do think the economic case, I, I have big problems with that, I'm afraid. And um, what happened with the currency and... Uh, but I, the problem is, I don't want to get into the argument against Scottish independence because, A, I don't think another English guy in London going, please stay with it. I don't think, uh, you know, what's the point? But I also understand the anger that exists in Scotland. And I think, you know... Uh, you know, I, I think it'd be better served for politicians in Westminster to engage with that and do something materially about it rather than people like myself try and berate Scottish people to stay in the United Kingdom. I would support a federal system myself where you have a looser, um, you know, kind of, you know, federal Britain uh, because it's still quite a centralised country compared to a lot of other countries. Um, but I understand why lots of Scottish people now have just made up their mind, particularly younger Scots, which doesn't bode well for the future of the United Kingdom, if we're honest. Um, so I just think my own view is they've got the right to an independence referendum. Um, it's a sacred democratic right, the right to national self-determination. Suppressing it is an attack on democracy itself, and Scotland should have should have an independence referendum. There we go. Um, so thank you for that, Fraser. Um, then... Um, Hmm, interesting. Matthew Faustini, have Biden slash the Democrats surprised or exceeded expectations? Well, it depends how positively or negatively I want to frame this. Not, not as bad as I thought he would be in lots of ways. I think it's interesting because if you look at like the Build Back Better legislation, the kind of, you know, you know, post-pandemic kind of policies they tried to develop. Actually, you know, they did get some quite ambitious stuff in there. The problem is in the Senate, the likes of Joe Manchin, the kind of right-wing Democratic senator. Um, and the other one, I've forgotten her name. Um, but they, you know, they prevented, they, they, you know, they kept watering down or, or refusing progressive legislation. But actually, you know, it, you know, the likes of Bernie Sanders were actually quite enthusiastic about what they originally got. It does show the, the issue with the Senate is, you know, the United States was founded as a republic rather than a democracy, and that the founding fathers, obviously a lot of them slave owners, um, they they wanted the Senate to be like a check as they saw on the passions of the people. So obviously with the Senate, you get two seats per state, regardless of how big or small they are. And that very much helps the right because obviously it means smaller conservative states get disproportionate power compared to like bigger states which are more progressive in their political outlook um and that's obviously been a problem in terms of that agenda i mean we have seen what isn't good is what's just happened i think people may be familiar with um what happened you know joe biden positioned himself as the most pro labor union uh, president ever as in sorry trade union labor union um, you know, 
And actually, a lot of unions were quite excited about him because of that. Um, but the railway workers who were out on strike demanding sick pay, um, he used his presidential power. He intervened and forced them to accept a deal that the vast majority of those rail workers thought was unacceptable. You know, the fact that they, you know, fighting for paid sick leave, ludicrous that they don't have paid um, sick leave. So, you know, basically the rail companies knew the White House could intervene and the White House did intervene on their side. So that's not good, I would say. Um, yeah, so it's mixed, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, the fact you haven't had a massive escalation of wars, you because, you know, the Democrats historically have started a lot of, they, you know, they got involved in Vietnam. <laughs> they Most of them voted for the Iraq war, including Joe Biden himself. Um, but you haven't got, you know, you got the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, the whole thing was a chaotic mess, I accept. And look at the state of Afghanistan. But, you know, you can't have a continuation of a two decade long war in which huge numbers of people, American soldiers, but more importantly, in terms of numbers, Afghan, soldiers, uh, Afghan civilians were dying. Um, so you haven't had like this massive expansion of, of war, uh, which you got, you know, under Clinton, you got, you know, under, under, under Obama, you got like the drone wars, you got Pakistani kids being... Um, killed by American cruise missiles. And then, you know, he joked about it once at the, the correspondence dinner where he talks about the Jonas Brothers. He's like, if you come near my daughter's predator drones, that's all I'm saying. Very funny, Obama, given that those drones that you are responsible for have actually killed kids in Pakistan and elsewhere. It's not funny, is it? It's just like, what a dick. Sorry, I know he's a saint in some circles, but that wasn't, that wasn't funny. So... You know, I don't think he's been like this big war president. And that's because of circumstance, though, if we're honest, because America has suffered whopping big strategic defeats in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, Libya in the sense, I mean, look at the state of Libya as well after the Libyan war. So you've got these big defeats suffered by American power. And, and, and so I don't think any president, it's not like Trump did a massive escalation of wars either. I just think America is this humbled power. So, but on the domestic on the domestic front, it's not as bad as I thought. It has partly been hobbled by two right-wing Democratic senators. But if you look at the, you know, his position on the railway workers, not good. If I could make any uh, current MP the Labour leader, who would it be? Well, I had John McDonald last week, and I did say he was the best Labour leader that Labour had never had had never had. I used to work for John McDonald, so I should probably declare an interest. In fact, I didn't just work for him. I worked for him um, from 2005, 2008, and actually helped run his leadership campaign. Didn't work, I'm afraid. Um, and, oh, sorry, everyone, I better stop. Oh, my God, there's so many comments. Jesus Christ, I need to hurry up with these. Um, yeah, John McDonald, just because I think he's one of the most intelligent Labour MPs. He's, you know, this autodidact from a working-class background, who's just really rooted in the Labour movement. I think he's a really good communicator. Um, after Labour lost in 2019, I was, oh God, it was during the, after the exit poll, it wasn't, I was in ITV studios and John texted me. I can't remember, I don't, well, I won't divulge what he texted, but I texted begging like, please, John, stand for leader, your only hope. And obviously he didn't, and we ended up with Keir Starmer. But yeah, I think John McDonnell is just, um, he's also got a very good vision um, he's a lot of socialists, obviously he comes from the gut, but he's got a kind of very clear vision of society, very rooted in kind of an ec economic worldview. Yeah, um, John McDonald for me. Um, 
current, but I mean, they've rigged a leader. <laughs> the idea now he'd be able to stand for leader is obviously not going to happen because they changed the rules to stop that from happening. Um, with Keir Starmer, Jarrod Castor again. Will hello, will Keir Starmer anyone else ever dissolve the Lords or at least their carpet? It is gross. It is gross. I've been in there. It's like a really odd place. I mean, I don't like going to Westminster. Whenever I have to go have a meeting in the House, House of Parliament, it's like, Egh. yeah. Um, well, okay. So in the leadership election, Keir Starmer promised to abolish the House of Lords, but Keir Starmer promised quite a lot of stuff during the leadership election, which he then abandoned because he's not an honest politician. I know that annoys people to hear, but it's true. Um, okay, so they have now done this review led by Gordon Brown, uh, a constitutional review, which calls for the replacement of the House of Lords with a Chamber of Regions and Nations. The problem is a lot of like uh, people called Lord Mandelson and Lord Blunkett, Labour Lords, have said, don't do that. It's a waste of resources. Please don't abolish us. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... You know, the House of Lords is an affront to democracy. You know, Tony Benn and his rules of power. Let me have a look. Rules of, rules of democracy. Um, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you use it? To whom are you accountable? How do we get rid of you? And the House of Lords fails on those basic questions of democracy. Some people go, well, look, they, they do, um, you know, sometimes late, you know, the government is defeated by the, the actions of the Lords. If you get rid of that, you'll concentrate more power in an unaccountable, um, uh, in a, well, in a kind of elected dictatorship. Um, there are other ways of doing it, by the way. So, so if you look at New Zealand, for example, that's got a unicameral system. That's a single chamber. But they've done it so they strengthen the checks and balances. So backbenchers have real power. Parliamentary committees have real power. They're not toothless. You know, you can do other ways of checks and balances. What Labour are offering is an elected second chamber, of some sort, which is representative of nations and regions. So that would still put a check on the other chamber and, and on the government. Because, you do, I, you know, I think that's important. Otherwise, you just, you know, you can see you get the gov a government like the Tories with a massive majority and then they just, you know, they've already got a concentration of power in their hands in a way that is much greater than lots of other democracies. So, but is he going to do it? Well, I'm not optimistic because... Um, he's basically made it clear it's an aspiration. And, um, you know, previous Labour governments haven't got rid of the House of Lords, obviously. Um, so, you know, is he really going to be the big exception given his track record? I'm not optimistic, but given he made it as a promise, we've got to put pressure on him to do so. Uh, Emma, Emma, oh, sorry, Emil Gertin. How about an investigation to NHS jobs at above £100,000 to start? Bizarre job. Director for lived experience at £115,000. Are they necessary? I don't know what that job is. I don't want to be one of those guys, like, you know, the Daily Mail or whatever. They have these, they look for these job titles and they start like, they do university courses as well. I don't know anything about that job. So what I would say about the NHS is, you're right, you do get, I'd say you get this managerial cast, which is often got these massive salaries. So the two things about that is, one, because of the increase of privatisation and marketization in the NHS, you get these complex um, contracts. Uh, it becomes this mishmash, the NHS, of these really complex contracts and arrangements with different private companies. And that requires a big managerial cast to oversee it. So rather than privatisation and marketization making the NHS more efficient, you actually just get more managers because you've got to oversee all these contracts. And, um, you know, Frank Dobson, the former Labour Health Secretary who campaigned against what New Labour then did after he stopped being health secretary, 
he made the point that um, th th those managerial jobs doubled as a consequence of privatisation. So that's one thing. The other thing is, in the public sector, you get this phenomenon often of very, you know, highly paid, overly paid jobs. I'm sorry, I'm just worried about my cat here. Kia. Um, is... Um, it's because uh, he wants to go on my lap. Oh, careful. Oh, I don't want to tip my water over my computer. Sorry, Kia. Hold on, hold on, hold on. There we go. Come on. Once we go. Um, yeah, he's happy now. Um, yeah, is because in the private sector, you get um, these uh, salaries, which are so high, that makes the public sector think they have to compete with the private sector because otherwise they won't get these various people because they're, um, uh, you know, because of the competition, if you like. Uh, anyway, yeah, so that's what I think. So I don't know anything specifically about that particular example. David Barata, the left seems to be on the back foot outside of South America. What will it take for the left to start gaining power in areas like Europe and Northern America? Also, thank you for what you do, Owen. Thank you for what you do, David. I mean, what matters is, you know, I'm just some guy. Um, he looks a bit like Macaulay Culkin talking about politics. <laughs> it's not. Um, but I really appreciate it. And, you know, you're great. Um, it is a, we, should, it, we should talk about Latin America more, by the way. You know, the fact is, across Latin America, you've got these progressive governments that have come to power. Latin America was really like the training ground for neoliberalism. You know, my, my parents took in Chilean refugees in the 1970s. They took in two different families, one of whom very tragic uh the mother and um, after she stopped living with my parents she actually took her own life which is a big trauma in the um uh chilean um uh community diaspora at the time so lots of uh, lots of left-wing families in south yorkshire took in chilean refugees there's quite a big chilean community in sheffield as a consequence anyway um but you know chile was where milton friedman the right-wing economist you know that's where his economic plans really first got put into practice and you know, then you've got these like right wing junters and then these governments afterwards, which just, you know, really went for privatization, deregulation, curtailed the unions, slash taxes on the rich. You know, so, you know, but Latin America suffered the terrible consequences of it. And, you know, in terms of rising poverty, explosion of inequality. So that's why at the beginning of the 2000s, you got the so-called pink tide, where you got a series of progressive governments that came to power, very different hues and approaches. But, you know, they're kind of there was a general gist and now across latin america that it's very dominant now obviously bolsonaro has gone i mean lula you know he's come in and he's you know the congress it's difficult because to get his agenda through because there's lots of right-wing and centrist politicians there but nonetheless overall you've got in chile for example um uh, boric who is the president talked about how you know chile was the birthplace of neoliberalism and now it must be its 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 graveyard it's difficult. They have lots of challenges, but they're doing, you know, in, in all of these different countries, good things. Uh, so we should talk about Latin America more because actually a lot of these countries over the last few years, you know, you had a kind of left wave that kind of, you know, the right came in, but in lots of these places, but actually they did lots and lots of really, really good things. Um, so we should talk about that more. Um, in terms of gaining power in areas like Europe and North America, I think the way I look at it is um, we had a first wave of a new left from basically the mid 2010s onwards. So you've got Syriza, Bernie Sanders, Syriza in Greece, Bernie Sanders in the United States, Podemos in Spain, um, the Corbyn phenomenon in Britain. Now, obviously, you know, well, Podemos is in government in coalition with the Spanish socialists, so you could argue that. You know, it's quite a challenging environment politically for them, but, you know, they have done some good things in office, that notwithstanding, but they didn't win what they wanted originally, which was at one point they were top of the polls there was a chance of a podemos government that hasn't hasn't happened oh in france as well you could see in france the radical left over 
in the last elections, eclipsed the so-called centre-left, um, which is an interesting phenomenon um, in France, even though obviously Macron and the fascists... Well, Macron won and the fascists did well, unfortunately. Oh, I just worried Kit is going to knock over the camera. No, he hasn't. That's fine. Um, yeah, so what I'd say is that first wave was after a period of real terrible defeat for the left, ideologically and organisationally. Um, and in kind of in hindsight, would those have, you know, given that the left had been exiled to political margins for so long, that we were in a defensive position, we were defined by what we were against, not what we were for. Um, and um, I think what, you know, we were weak in, you know, society. So we were starting from such a weak point to try and jump from that to power is quite a big leap. So I think what that first wave has done is I think you've got a whole generation of younger leftists now who've become politicized. That hasn't gone away. That exists in the United States, Spain, Britain. That is here now in a way that didn't exist when I was a teenager um, or in my 20s. You know, I, people who think about how terrible things are politically, I appreciate they are. But like when I was growing up, there wasn't a left. Like there was just we were just so marginal and non-existent politically. It was not. It was, you know it wasn't good. There is now a left, is what I mean, and a left sensibility, particularly amongst people under forty. So I think I would say you know um, we've got a kind of. I'm, I'm, sorry, the other key point was we now rather than just being defensive, stop the cut, stop privatization, stop war. We've got a vision of society. We've got lots of economists and academics who come up with really good ideas. So now actually we have this kind of sense of the sort of society we'd like to build and how we get there. So whether it be, you know, in, in America, we've got AOC and the likes. Obviously in Britain, we've got left MPs. Um, but we more importantly, we've just got this generation of more politically engaged people. And I think we've got more of a springboard. And I think, as I've said, when Labour comes to power, which they probably will, I think the disappointment of, you know, they'll raise expectations, disappointment. That's when we come into play here in this country. Um, but we're in a period of total crisis permanent social crisis, a growing climate emergency. And I just think the left is the only political force with the ideas to, to deal with those emergencies and crises. I don't think the so-called centre, let alone the right, have the answers to the problems we have. So I think we've built up an organisational foundation um, and we have an intellectual foundation that we didn't have before. And I think now we need to just, we suffered some terrible demoralising defeats, but actually we're in a better position than I think we often take we, that we often appreciate so yeah i think that's why i think um there is more hope than things seem um sg please read my super chat comments what i don't i can't see them but i'll get through them because i need to do more of this i need to get through why aren't i vegan you passionately fight against injustice but at the same time pay for animals to be unnecessarily tortured and murdered just to please your taste buds still, still a fan of your work case Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I still like to talk about this because, like, my happy space is Instagram because on Twitter, like, a lot of the comments are like, die, you effing gay communist bastard. You know, anyway, I go on. I'm not trying to be self-pitying, but I do. I get lots of nice tweets, but I do get, like, and, and Instagram is just people being really nice. Uh, a lot of my Instagram content, I would say, is cats, politics, and shameless thirst traps. That's what I use Instagram for. The thirst trap road to socialism. Don't begrudge it. Very important. Anyway, um, but because a lot, because I put so much cat content on, obviously what I think my Instagram has done is attract disproportionately animal lovers. And I think disproportionately they are vegan. And the only time I get angry comments on Instagram is like when I'm like eating some salmon and people are like, how, how dare you? Yeah, look, okay. Um, I've got a twin sister. She's a vegetarian. I'm not sure that really covers me though, does it? Um, I think I... 
I, I look, I appreciate where you're coming from. I do think there's a, ch- a good chance in the future none of us will eat meat and we'll look back at the idea we did in kind of horror. You know, it is complicated because, you know, a lot of the animals, I do, obviously, you know, I don't believe, I should say, I don't believe in animal rights. I believe in animal welfare. I believe humans should, you know, we're the, you know, we, we should be the custodians of the planet because no other animal can do that position. And obviously what we're doing is destroying the planet and we're going through the sixth biggest, the sixth major extinction in the Earth's history. The last one was the extinction of the dinosaurs. And that's because of human behavior and actions. Um, I think, you know, in terms of meat, I mean, basically I eat chicken and salmon, basically. That's, I don't really eat any other form of meat or fish. Um, but I appreciate it's problematic. Um, I just haven't been able to do a sustainable vegetarian diet. I understand the argument for it. I mean, particularly if you look at cows, which let off a lot of methane, they burp a lot. And actually, you know, livestock globally is responsible for as much global emissions um, as um, transport. Um, So that's a big problem. Um, So, you know, but then it's like, you know, telling basically Chinese and Indians who increasingly eat meat, you know, don't do that. You know, from Western perspective, it seems a bit like... He's been doing that for quite a while. Why shouldn't we? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I'd like, I, I just don't, you know, the thing with vegetarian and vegan diet, uh, vegan diets is, is most people don't stick to them according to the statistics and um, because, you know, it can be quite challenging. I think it's amazing pe- people who do. Um, I don't have a good answer. I just, I'm not, I haven't been able to make it. My, my brother did it for years and then he gave up. I just thought it's not something I'd be able to stick to. And I'd only do it if I could stick to it. But I do appreciate the critique, uh, Mark. Um, always up for being criticised, by the way. Um, this is a good job. Uh, Tad Campwell, your opinion, I found hard to understand, your opinion on British people in Northern Ireland versus Scots in the UK. A United Ireland would have to come to terms with a new minority apart from the existing Irish one. Hard to ask without a second conversation. If I... Oh, get this right. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think the point is... Um... Right. I, well, I support the reunification of Ireland. Um, and not that, you know, the, the question of Northern Ireland and Scotland is just completely different. Scotland is not an oppressed country. It's not, it's not, it's not colonised country. Um, the British Empire, the Scottish and English elites were both up to their necks in the blood of the British Empire. Um, it's not, Ireland, on the other hand, was a, a violently subjugated nation, like violently so. Like the horror that was inflicted on Ireland by English and Scottish settlers. A lot, of course, of those who settled in the Protestant ascendancy in the north were Scottish Presbyterians. I'm not obviously having to go at Scotland as a consequence, but I'm just saying it was a joint enterprise. Um, So, you know, what you saw, for example, in the potato famine was half the Irish population died or were forced to flee. Um, the Irish population in the mid-19th century was similar to the English population in size, and now it's about 10% the size. Never recovered from that, that one horror. And there were centuries of horror. And then you got, in the Irish War of Independence, the horrors inflicted again, like the black and tans, um, you know, what they did to, you know. Anyway, so I support the unification of Ireland just because my view is Ireland was a violently subjugated nation in the British Empire don't have the same approach to Scotland. Wasn't. I, I think Scotland's got the right to become its own nation independently if they so wish. But I don't think Scotland's oppressed. Um, I don't think it, it is historically an oppressed nation. I think the Scottish and English elites, as I've said, historically have a lot to answer for, including in Ireland. So yeah, I just don't include them in the same category. Um, 
what are your 2024 um, election predictions? Oh, dear. Um, yeah, making election predictions generally at the moment. Oh, it's a hostage to fortune. I don't... Okay, I think the Democrats will win. I mean, it'd be interesting if Joe Biden does actually become the nomin nominee. Because the Democrats did better in the November elections, I think he's in a... You know, that gives him... If they'd have done as expected, he wouldn't have become the nominee, I think. He would have stood down. He's not a young guy. <laughs> I'm not being ageist, but he's not exactly young, is he? Um, but given how badly compared to how they should have done midterms, the Republicans, given what happens in midterms is the governing party normally gets a shellacking, but also the economic circumstances in the United States, um, and also the way that, because those two right-wing Democratic senators gutted the Democratic policy agenda, that kind of hobbled the administration a lot. Um, given the Republicans didn't do very well, I I think the Democrats have obviously an overwhelming chance of winning. The danger now is that Donald Trump is the nominee, um, which I think. Oh yeah, sorry, I didn't even didn't even. I mean, didn't even talk about Donald Trump. Did I? I mean, you know, so you're going to have a fight now between Ron DeSantis, who is the Republican governor of Florida, who's a really scary guy. You know, he's you know a hard right demagogue who is more polished and less kind of you know clownish i suppose than donald trump arguably that makes him more dangerous he does the you know he did the don't say gay bill in the united states banning discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in school in, uh, amongst um in schools so um i think donald trump would win the nomination though i think whoever you know if DeSantis stands against him i think it will be a vicious and quite intriguing battle which will be quite a horrendous for the republicans oh well uh internal civil war but i think Tr trump would win that and um, I think the danger for the, for the perspective of American democracy is this time round, he will just point blank what well, he did last time, refuse to accept, obviously, the validity of the election. But this time, you know, the danger is it won't just be the assault on the Capitol that we saw, which that mob which stormed the Capitol to try and prevent the certification of the election results, is you'll actually get something far bigger and more horrific and sinister. You know, polling does suggest that a huge number of Americans think the probability of civil war is very high. I don't think America would have a civil war like they had in the 19th century, which was like two big blocks of states with their own separate armies fighting each other. You know, civil conflagration can take other forms. It's a very armed nation. There are lots of arms there. Disproportionately, it's those on the right who obviously have the most weapons. Um, and I do worry about the prospect of violence. Um and you can just see how things could escalate out of control with someone like Donald Trump refusing this time around to accept the election results, but going all in, because that's his last chance. He's not going to stand again after that, realistically. Um, you could see that just getting really dangerous. So my view is the Democrats will win. I think that's very likely. Um, uh, I think Trump will definitely be the nominee. Biden, it's, you know, it's higher chance than it was before. Um, I think he'll win. But I think, um, yeah, as I said, Trump will fight that quite badly um how long will it take kenny kane's penalty to re-enter the atmosphere of oh, phil honestly was oh, it was a lot wasn't it what i'd say the only thing i just want to say about that is i just think there's such a good bunch of lads i really really do um i think um you know they're very progressively minded compared to a lot of previous english football players you know the likes of marcus rashford obviously campaigning against Poverty and using his platform in 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 powerful ways. You know, you get these young working class 
um, lads from a variety, you know, of mixed backgrounds. Um, and the fact is, you know, I think I just actually admire not all of the football team, to be fair, <laughs> caveats. But I really, you know, I thought what was so sad about it is actually this is an England football team in my lifetime that I would look at and actually feel quite a lot of admiration towards them. I think England played well. I think France is just the best team in the world at the moment. Hold on. I've got to let Keir out because he's... Stay there. Don't go anywhere. Oh, go on, Keir. Sorry. Um, okay. Sorry. Keir was mewling to get out. Um, hi. Um, yeah, I mean, France, I just think, is the best team at the moment. And I think England did pretty good against a better team. But it's a young team. They're all like... They've got another World Cup in them. And I think, who knows, in four years' time. Uh, would I consider becoming an MP? No, I'd prefer death, the cold, sweet embrace of death. Um, no, I wouldn't want to become an MP. I never have wanted to become an MP. I have been asked to stand before, including in my home constituency of Stockport. Um, lots of reasons I wouldn't want to become an MP. Um, one is uh, the track record of journalists becoming MPs is not a good one. <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'll give you two examples. Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. I don't really want to be in their company. Um, my argument, I think, is that I always wanted to support those from underrepresented backgrounds becoming MPs. There's a lack of working class MPs. There's a lack of people of colour. Uh, there's a lack of disabled MPs. I mean, if we talk about the onslaught on the welfare state, we need more disabled voices in Parliament to talk about the impact on disabled people. You know, I want people, you know, you know, more people, more people who've been at the sharp end of policies, basically, because at the moment you just end up with this kind of, it's just quite very managerial type MPs who are just, you know, very soulless and rootless. And, um, you know, just kind of rogue auto, automat automatons, automatons, very robotic, androids, not all of them. There are MPs I don't agree with who, are, you know, I see they speak from the heart and conviction and they have experience, which is important. But actually, you know, I don't think people like, I think there's enough people like myself in Parliament. Also, like, the other thing I'd say is Tony Benn, when he left Parliament, said he left Parliament to spend more time in politics. I don't think we should see uh, Parliament as the be-all and end-all of politics. Um, and I think, you know, what I've always tried to do is support mass movements 
um, and use my platform to support those mass movements as best I can. You know, movements, um, whether it be anti-fascism, um, whether it be against cuts, uh, whether it be, you know, picket lines. I mean, at the moment, what I keep... Uh, last night, as I said, was it the uh, IWGB, the trade union, um, uh, 10th anniversary? I've, I've spent lots of time in their picket lines. I was at, you know, picket line the other, other week for the UCU, academic workers out on the strike. Yeah. Um, so what I try and do is use my platform. I use this channel. I use my TV appearances. I use uh, my columns at social media to try and signal boost those causes. You know, that's how I see my role is trying to kind of platform ideas, causes, movements, and people who are marginalized, ignored, demonized as best I can. I don't always do it well. You know, I mess up, <laughs> get things wrong, but I always do it. I always do it for the right reasons. No, I do. I mean, you know, but it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes, but I just don't see what I'd add. I don't think, I just think there's other people who are more rooted in their communities. And I think we forget often that's what MPs are supposed to be about. They're supposed to be like representatives of their community, their constituency. I don't think... I'm the right person for that. I think there are people watching this or listening to this on the podcast who would do a better job in that regard than someone like me. Uh, Liam Bailey. Yeah. If Labour are pandering to right-wing views on the NHS, why will you bite Labour? I think you mean, I presume votes. Maybe I'll bite. I'd like to bite Labour hard. Well, I mean, I've already spoken about this, but um, I... Uh, oh, God, it's been a long few years. Yeah, look... Um, I do think uh, Labour's positions on a whole range of things are either bad or insufficient. I do think there's a gap which exists between Labour and the Tories, which is too small, but millions of people live in that gap. It was John Lennon who once pointed that out in the 1970s. Um, but uh, my view, as I've said, is I think um, movements outside of Parliament will have a much better um, shot at building pressure under a Labour government than a Tory government. I, I would choose. I prefer to choose Keir Starmer as an opponent than Rishi Sunak. I don't think Rishi Sunak will concede anything, but I think a Labour government could be forced under pressure to do things they don't want to do. And um, maybe that's wrong, but I, I my view is nothing, nothing good can ever happen under the Tories ever. It's like it doesn't matter how hard you try. It's not like you know in in, in the era of democracy, the Conservatives have done no meaningful progressive social change. So you know. It just because, you know, society just moves further to the right. Um, the political debate moves further to the right. You know, some of the down, most downtrodden people in society get repeatedly screwed over. I don't think things would be as bad under Labour. That's not good enough. I know that's not good enough. But, you know, it's still voting for less pain. <laughs> but it's also saying that we can build more pressure under a Labour government and that the only left-wing representation we have is because of the Labour Party. If Sarah Sultana and John McDonnell resigned from the Labour Party, they wouldn't then stay as MPs, probably, because the vast majority of, you know, it doesn't work like that. Most people don't even know who the local MPs are, I'm afraid. So we just lose all our left-wing MPs, because the only reason we've got the left-wing MPs we've got, it's not enough, better than nothing. And we only have those MPs because of the Labour Party. And if they quit, then we wouldn't have any of them. So, yeah, that's my view um, on that, basically. Um, will Qatar protests change, uh, force change in the Middle East? Ask Mark M.P. Uh, Moss. Um, I don't... I don't think... I mean, I, 
I'm not so convinced. I mean, we have the Arab Spring, which ended so catastrophically, which is quite bleak and depressing. I mean, if you look at Egypt, for example, actually, it's quite heartbreaking. You remember the Egyptian Revolution and how much hope and optimism there seemed at the time, and then you actually ended up with something even worse. You know, I think the history of US intervention in the Middle East is so criminal and awful, by the way, in terms of subverting. Uh, you know, democracy, for example. So you got in Iran, famously, Mossadegh, a progressive social reformer who was elected and then overthrown in a CIA-backed coup in the 1950s with, I'd say, pretty ruinous long-term consequences. Yeah, um, it's a hard one, you know. It's, like, it's, it's difficult. Um, I think um, all I say about Qatar is I do think it's frustrating that the only time we start talking meaningfully about human rights abuses committed by Western allies when there's a sports tournament there. We should have, you know, talk far more about Saudi Arabia. We arm it to the teeth um, with, you know, weapons as it carpet bombs and destroys uh, uh, Yemen. So I'm just checking. I've got a handyman coming around. To, someone's just moved in with me. Um, so I was just checking to see if they were going to text me. So sorry about that. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, Saudi Arabia um, is a really egregious example. They behead people for being gay, for being dissidents. They brutalize women, suppress all forms of democracy. Um, and they cut, you know, the, the, this onslaught against Yemen. I've been to a Yemeni refugee camp in Djibouti. It was, you know, meeting those little kids. So traumatized, drawing pictures of eight-year-olds, drawing pictures of, missiles pounding streets and dead bodies everywhere it wasn't it was grim yeah i just wish we talked far more about it without a sports tournament and you know obviously the issue of lgbtq rights is very passionate about i do think obviously in Qatar it goes broader than that like the treatment of migrant workers i just think we should talk more about it without having to uh without having to um have a sports tournament sorry someone's telling me to hurry up and that's actually kind of correct because i'm actually kind of rambling quite a lot uh captain coconut what are your thoughts on US, uk us political transparency laws since its introduction has it helped the people keep tabs on the political leaders or has it just given our democracy to the lobbyists well, i'm not so sure about that i mean we've got freedom information um laws for example which was actually passed under the last labor government tony blair said it was like the one policy he regretted the most <laughs> it's like one of their better policies obviously tony blair wasn't gonna be a fan of it. I'm not so sure. I don't know, Captain Coconut. I'm sorry. I'm trying. Ju- I don't know specifically what you're referring to, which is frustrating. Um, can I just l- see if I just type in political? Oh, hello. That's not. If I type in political transparency laws, what am I going to get? Is my question. Um, I need to look into that. I'm rambling as it is. Sorry, Captain Coconut. That's a really good point, and I will revisit it. Maybe I could do a video on it. Um, Gareth Brown's uh, Brown's sword. UK needs t- TV channel funded, managed, and presented by collective socialists. How to achieve that? Crowdfunding, sponsorship, amalgam of all existing left wing press unions are perhaps something new. Yeah, I don't know because I think the problem is it's so expensive, so expensive running a TV channel, and obviously you wouldn't be able to rely on commercial advertising um, because pff, obvious reasons. Um, so the amount of crowdfunding necessary would be so vast. And it would have to be really good because I don't think it would have to be a channel that appeals to people who aren't already left wing. Um, And I think, you know, I think the danger is a lot of people who are kind of very politically committed might make something, you know, which appeals to people who are already left wing, but maybe not to broader groups of people. And then that what's the point if it's a TV channel? Um, Yeah, it's just so challenging. It's so expensive. You know, I mean, you know, even, you know got me and navara and what we do is it takes a lot of time and resources 
um, and we're you know a fraction of what a TV channel would be. It's it's not easy. I mean, these things are expected. There's a reason that you know you've got media outlets and TV channels or media outlets in this country certainly run by oligarchs, um, newspapers because they're so expensive to run, um, and you don't exactly get rich left wing people who just can take over. And you know, the Guardian, my own newspaper, um, is a liberal newspaper, not a socialist newspaper. I'm a socialist. I work at a liberal newspaper, but it's not run by an oligarch. It's run by the Scott Trust, so it stops that from happening. That's the only newspaper that does that. Yeah, I'm not ruling it out in the future. I just think it's so complicated and the dangers it would be kind of quite crude and um, not appealing to people who aren't already signed up uh, to left-wing ideas. I just think that's worth thinking about anyway. Brown sword. Great. Sorry. Making a note there. Um, Hold on, let's keep going. Phil McCracken again. The only reason to vote Labour is to get the t- Tories out, not the Tidies, unless that's a nickname for the Tories I wasn't aware of. How will Labour regain the left who are voting with noses held and will abandon Starmer when in office? I wouldn't phrase it so much, by the way, as left versus right, because I don't think most people, I see myself as left-wing, and I'm sure you do, but most people don't think in those terms. The way I see it is groups of voters who feel taken for granted by the Labour Party, who are loyal traditionally to the Labour coalition or have become so. Younger people have become overwhelmingly pro-Labour in a way they weren't historically, actually. They, you know, younger people tended to vote similar to their parents. That's changed. Younger people now overwhelmingly vote Labour, um, whilst older people have, for a long time now, increasingly voted Conservative. Um, I think the more, so it's more kind of like, will working, will kind of like, Public sector workers, for example. So you see West Streeting going to take on the unions. So will then, and, and you know, when, won't commit to real terms pay rise for, for underpaid staff. Those sorts of things. So public sector workers, will they then get angry under a Labour government when they don't get real, if they don't get real terms pay increases? Or they have more privatisation being driven, forced on them by Labour government. Younger people who suffer huge amounts of social insecurity, a housing crisis, a lack of secure jobs, uh, stagnating living standards, that kind of thing. Um, oh, great. Sorry, the handyman. Let me just reply to him because um, he's coming um, in 45 minutes. I won't go for that long. Sorry, though, even though I am taking too long. Sorry, just letting him know. That's great. Um, yeah. Um, so I think younger people, uh, the housing crisis, the jobs crisis, living standards crisis, they've softened the brunt for so many years after the financial crash onwards. And when we talk about millennials, we're now talking people who are like, I mean, I'm 38, like the oldest millennials are what, 42? I mean, you know, that, you know, the millennials in people's heads are still kind of the youth, but, you know, I'm a geriatric millennial. Uh, you've got younger millennials and then you've got Generation Z. But, you know, I think it's the gener- Generation Z or Z, Zoomers and millennials are, you can see how they get alienated. Um, minorities, again, you can see how Labour, for example, in the Batley and Spend by election, were basically castigating Muslim voters who would represent a massive, significant chunk of the Labour coalition now. I think there's about, what, three to 4 million Muslims in Britain overwhelmingly vote for the Labour Party. And, you know, they were like going, oh, well, we don't need the Muslim voters and called and denounced them saying um, that the reason they didn't vote for Labour is because uh, they're against gay rights and because of Palestine. Um, you know, just kind of horrific kind of, you know, on the issue of Palestine, the, obviously people who aren't Muslim who support the liberation of Palestine from an illegal and brutal occupation. Uh, but, you know, I went to Ballinspen and spoke to Labour canvassers. No one brought up gay rights on the doorstep. And Muslim voters were voting for new Labour when it was passing gay rights laws, which people forget. Um, you know, so it's not like Muslim voters defected to the Conservatives over gay rights in, tw- in the 2000s. They didn't. They voted for politicians who support gay rights. So it obviously wasn't an overriding concern of theirs. 
Yeah. So I just that you can see, you know, them being contemptuous towards different blocks of voters. So I don't think it's about pissing off the left. I think it's about because in terms of being in an organized left, most people aren't engaged in, a, in, a, in an overt way. I think it's those groups, younger people, public sector workers. And when I say younger people, I mean like people who are 40, basically. Um, young, so millennials and Zoomers, uh, public sector workers, um, you know, not just public sector workers, rail workers aren't obviously in a public uh, company. So like organized, the organized workers um, and minorities. I think they'll piss a lot of those off and that will, I think, cause them big, big problems. Yeah. Um, Stuart L, asking me, Lord B Bishop of Manchester, some questions. Do you mind if I please ask one from you? Thank you. From a, co from a college change maker. Well, yeah, Stuart, I don't know what your question is, though. Um, but, yeah, I don't really understand that. I'm sorry. Maybe it's my fault. Uh, let's keep going, though. Thanks, though. Uh, Ton Thon Phrase Doe, why don't you never mention colonialism? Well, I do, actually. I mean, I mean, I literally chaired an event three weeks ago about the British Empire. <laughs> um, you can look up the video on Open Democracy. Um, it's called Bo Look Up Boomerang. Um, on open on if you type in boomerang on open democracy you can see that i chaired an entire discussion about the british empire <laughs> so i do uh I've, if you look up on my articles i have written about for example the history of british imperialism in india uh in kenya the mau mau uprising so just quickly on on india um mike davis recently died he wrote a book which had a big impact on me called late victorian holocausts and it was about the famines suffered under British rule. The last famine in India was in 1943. It was the Bengal famine. That was under Winston Churchill. Three million died. Um, there have been no famines since, of those sorts, since India became independent from Britain. And these were avoidable famines in which tens of millions died. Terrible crimes. Uh, you know, people talk about the famines under Mao. So why don't we talk about the famines under the British Empire? Well, interesting, isn't it? Um, similarly, Kenya, you had the Mao Mao uprising in the 1950s, the Kikuyu tribe who, 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 um, fought for independence from the British Empire, put in camps, tortured, murdered, raped, horrific. We don't talk about these things because, you know, it would it would, it would, would open up a, a Pandora's box, I suppose, because you can't understand modern racism without colonialism. You can't understand the point about the boomerang documentaries. It looks a lot how a lot of British inequities, things like tax havens, are rooted in the empire. So I do talk about it. It's difficult talking about it a lot because, you know, I do write mostly about, contemporary issues um you know i talk about politics in britain in the here and now um so when i've spoken about colonialism it's kind of linking it to that but what i'm saying is like you know i i do talk about colonialism i've done stuff about colonialism i should do more i appreciate but i should do a lot more about so many things if i'm honest hey owen who's your favorite beetle so it just reminded me of the um alan partridge and he's asked what you, what's your favorite Beatles album i'd say the best of the Beatles. <laughs> we still make laugh. Well, I was just a cliche. I'd say John Lennon, wouldn't I? Probably. I mean, John Lennon. I do like Paul McCartney. I don't. I don't really like Wings, the band, but um, I do. Yeah, I'd say John Lennon just because I'm a massive cliche. Uh, my dad really liked John Lennon, and um, maybe that's part of the reason. Owen Garland, have you ever read how nonviolence protects the state? And if so, what do you think about it? If not, do you have any thoughts about Solfed? I haven't read that. No, um, I will look it up though. Yeah, how nonviolence protects the state. Okay, we've made a note. Um, Solfed uh, is an anarchist uh, grouping. Um, I'm not an anarchist. I think I think anarchists have played historically a very important role in lots of movements, like anti-racism for a start, things like squatting, housing rights, um, 
So I have a lot of respect. I mean, a lot of my friends started off as anarchists or some of my friends started off in kind of the anarchist milieus and then got involved in Corbynism. Uh, so maybe they shifted, I suppose, politically. One of, one of my friends was in Solfed, actually. Um, yeah, I've got respect for the anarchist tradition. I'm just not an anarchist. Um, yeah. Um, an anarchist, you know, in the Spanish Civil War, anarchism played a big role, like the CNT. Uh, so, yeah, I don't look at, and I don't have a negative view of anarchists in the whole. I mean, a lot, there are anarchists who regard me basically as a bit wet, I would say. <laughs> regard me as a bit of a melt. They're like, you know, kind of melty, wet labor, right? <laughs> I think a lot of them regard me as, but that's fine. Um, I'm, you know, but I, yeah, so I just think anarchists have always historically been um, an important part of our movement in lots of ways. Why hasn't there been big civil unrest yet? That's a big, that's a good question, actually, from big, the Big Question podcast. Well, I mean, we did have the riots in 2011, um, which had a lot, I think, to do with. Uh, lots of underlying social and economic crises that existed at the time and the crash and the impact that had. Um, I mean, we did get the student movement as well back in 2010, which I was part of. I, th I guess a lot of energy went into the Corbyn movement. I think that's partly what happened. I think that's what happened. A, a lot of movement, a lot of anger and frustration at the system went into Corbynism. And then I think the defeat left people demoralised and disorientated. Um, and a bit directionless. I think that will change. Um, I think as, w as well as a view that the Tories are finished. So there's a kind of like, we're just waiting for them to go. But I also think this country is a bit of a tinderbox. So I think you could see some forms of unrest, including under a Labour government, if they end up being crap. Um, but I'm a big believer in peaceful civilness, peaceful civil disobedience. We want a lot of our rights through that. We have seen the likes, for example, of Just Stop Oil, which are pissing lots of people off. But historically, lots of those activists piss people off. The suffragettes piss people off. They were vilified at the time. And they were a lot more extreme than Just Stop Oil. I think they actually killed people, which I'm not recommending just before I get barred from YouTube. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, the way we look at some of these dissidents now is very different from how they were seen at the time. Um yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, so I do believe, you know, a lot of our rights and freedoms were won through peaceful civil disobedience, certainly. Uh, workers' rights, LGBTQ rights, women's rights. Um, and I would support that under any form of government. So I think we should have that discussion. Uh, I hear sinners. Why does Starmer get a lot of criticism? We can't begrudge a Labour leader being um, cautious in the run-up to an election. The reason he gets a lot of criticism is he stood on a series of promises to become Labour leader and then he abandoned them. And you shouldn't do that. It's a dishonest, disreputable thing to do. It damages democracy. Because if politicians think they can say anything in order to win a position and then abandon them, then people stop having faith in politicians because they go, well, they're promising me this, but I don't believe them. And I have a rational reason not to believe them. So it's bad for democracy. Um, he, you know, he won the leadership election in a dishonest fashion. He promised to offer radical transformative policies and have a unified party in which the left would pay an important part of a broad church. That hasn't happened. It's the complete opposite. He offered basically like uh, Corbynism with a professional face and then offered Blairism with a less charismatic face. Um, yeah, if a politician... So like if a politician... Like, I mean, this is what I kind of... People are like, ooh, the left, the left should stop criticising Starmer. It's like, what do you expect us to do? Like he promised a series of left-wing promises and party unity and then abandoned those left-wing commitments and waged war on the left. I mean, when people say this, they're like, 
Will the left just die quietly, please? <laughs> Go and die, but don't make a song and dance about it. And it's also what I call the Schrodinger's left, because people are like, the left is so weak and marginal and toxic that they must be marginalized and crushed. But simultaneously, the left is so powerful that they can swing elections with their tweets criticizing Keir Starmer. It's like, choose one or the other. <laughs> um, so yeah, he that's why he gets criticized, because he reneged on his promises. And if a leader becomes elected on the back of promises they make which they then abandon they're going to get criticized and it would be really weird and actually quite disturbing if they didn't um some of the most angry people i know in the labor party are people who voted for keir starmer i didn't have to say because they um because um he they th they feel lied to well they were uh thank you to oscar cox sorry i'm just making a note because i'm flying blind now but it's fine hasn't collapsed has it even though not very good at doing this by myself. Uh, Cody, thank you to you as well. Here we go, Cody. We're getting there, guys. Sorry, I'll get through this. Why don't you become an MP? And why don't you have an OnlyFans page? <laughs> okay, there's slightly different questions there. Admiral Awesome. Uh, I said why I don't want to be an MP. I think there are bare, bare place people who are rooted in their communities, uh, who are underrepresented in Parliament in a way journalists aren't. And um, I don't have an OnlyFans page because um, I don't even know what to say there, really. People call it suggested only fans. Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, just on Instagram, I put shameless thirst traps up enough as it is. I'm sure there's some people like, do we really have to see your naked torso, Owen? Um, well, they've got a point. It's, um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I'm not setting up an only, I'm not doing only fans. Um, it'd be quite a niche market, I think. Linked. John the Potato, how's gym progress? When's the next thirst trap? Um, I have become a gym rat. I wrote an article about it last year, a year ago. Um, yeah, I, I really got into the gym because I think it's very good for your mental health um, exercise. Um, as you get older, if you don't work out or do exercise in terms of muscle strength, then you lose muscle year on year. Um, and... Um, if you build up more muscle, then you're resting weight. Uh, you burn more energy just re doing nothing than, than otherwise. Yeah, it's, just, it's good for your health, obviously. It's good for your head. Um, and, yeah, I like getting into shape. It's like I like doing something where you put in effort and you see results. Um, partly because things politically are so depressing and bleak. It's like it's not like I'm putting an effort into politics to see great results. It's just, no, it's just a lot of times being shit. So I suppose vanity is all I've got left is what I'm trying to say. The only thing is what I get frustrated about with the gym industry. Only 15% of gym members regularly use a gym. So they, it's getting ripped off. People are getting ripped off because there's not... Gyms know that because otherwise there'd be more gym space. Um, and I think what I feel frustrated about is people, um, in terms of getting into shape, they either think they need to diet and don't diet. It's a complete waste of your life. It'll make you miserable for nothing. 85 to 90% of people who diet end up with as much weight or more weight within a year. So it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is you need to get into a position where you've got a sustainable um, um, kind of diet, as in you're doing something every day that doesn't make you feel deprived of, of things. Um, so that's what I, I mean, I, I eat a lot, but I go to the gym. So, you know, I need, I need to eat a lot of protein and good carbohydrates. That's the other thing where people demonize carbohydrates. Don't do that. You should eat good carbs when you're working out, like brown rice, brown bread, um, you know, things like that. Um, sweet potatoes. Mm. Um, yeah, and then, you know, lots of protein uh, and good fats, like avocado. 
you know, what's less good is processed food and sugars, which are bad for you. But my frustration is I think a lot of people go to the gym and they think they either go, yeah, I need to diet. And then they get put on more weight in the end because they can't have a sustainable, you know, they cut out carbs and after a while, they're just so miserable. They end up eating more, more carbs and then they put on more weight and then they feel depressed about it. Or they think they just go to the gym um, and exercise and then that will sort it out. But it's, Getting into shape is 70% what you eat and 30% exercise, roughly. So what people need to do is eat good quality, healthy foods, which is often difficult because they're quite expensive often. You know, that's why we need to change, you know, incentivize people by, you know, I'd say subsidizing healthy food, which is tasty. It's very important it's tasty that you enjoy it and nutritious. Um, yeah, and, you know, so it's a balance of you work out um, and you do, that's the other thing. People go to the gym and they just do, I used to just do random machines, didn't know what I was doing. You need to do a muscle group on a certain day. You need to get your form right, otherwise you're going to injure yourself. Um, and you need to wait 48 hours before you exercise that muscle group again. I might do a video on this sometimes because I'm very interested in it. I just feel frustrated because I think the, the fitness industry, the diet industry is ripping people off. It's not giving people a really useful route map to getting into shape. People, you know, obviously what's important is people are happy and, you know, also a lot of people don't have the time. I'm looking, I li literally live next to a gym and I work at home. So, you know, I don't have kids. It's easier for me to do this. You know, I have privileges. I can afford a gym membership, you know? So I just think, you know, I, I just get frustrated because I think a lot of people would get into better shape if they were given access to good information about food and about working out rather than stuff that preys on their insecurities um, but doesn't actually help them get to where they want to get. That's my own view. And, you know, at the end of the day, I spend too much time in the gym. It, I don't need to get in shape in the way I've done. Uh, lots of people are very, very healthy and don't spend anywhere near as much time exercising as I do. So, you know, life's too short at the end of the day. Um, and I'm just vain, probably. On Alexander Troop, have you been? Have you ever reached out to Hassan Pike in the US for an international socialist chat? I've kind of messed that up, actually, Alexander, because... Yeah, he got in touch with me when he visited Britain and I was really, over, I was a bit burnt out at the time. I didn't get back in touch with him in time. I think he was probably a bit irritated. Um, well, he might not have been irritated. He might have been like, whatever. But um, I messed that up. I should have met up with him. I didn't. I'm an idiot. I'm, you know, speaking of thirst traps for socialism, I mean, you should check out Hassan Piker. Very good looking guy. Um I'm, I'm not saying that, sorry, that sounds a bit like, kind of like, come on, you can't just objectify people. I'm just saying on his Instagram, he does himself, like myself, he does shameless thirst traps, but maybe in a better position to do so physically. Tad Campwell, um, in your opinion, the Scots Gaelics were just as dispossessed of the, as the Irish, and I think you oversimplify Scottish history. In the early uh, 1800s, 30% of the British Army were Irish. Maybe a two-hour pub conversation, I'll buy the drinks. Yeah, fair enough, Tad. I mean, look, I'm not saying, you know, you have the high clearances. Obviously, you also had brutal um, oppression inflicted on Welsh people and also the English peasantry and the English working class. I just think the dynamics of Scot of Ireland is colonialism. I don't think the dynamic with Scotland is colonialism. And I, I just I'm careful about it because I just think a lot of Irish people get, get angry in the way that they would feel their own oppression is being kind of not taken seriously as it should. Um, David Smith, how did studying at Oxford inform your politics? That's a really interesting. Uh, question because so I grew up in Stockport I'm no working class here I've never pretended to be my dad was a white collar local authority worker in Sheffield until he lost his job he was unemployed for a couple of years uh, my mum taught IT at Salford University and um, I grew up in a working class community uh, people I grew up with a lot of them their lives were very hard you know 
someone who wore school uniform at weekends because he didn't have any other clothes really. Um, people are just really difficult lives. Um, so that obviously informed my politics. I grew up in a left-wing family, so that gave me a kind of, you know, I guess a, a worldview probably. I wasn't brainwashed in that way because my parents were very broken down politically by the 80s and the defeats. Lucky we avoided going through that again. Um, yeah, so I, uh, where was I going with that? Yeah, so that had a big impact on my politics, growing up with people whose lives were very hard. And then when I went to Oxford, I'd never met anyone who would go to a grammar school, let alone a private school. So I went to Oxford. <laughs> it, was a bit of a, <laughs> it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, you know, and I, you know, look, as I said, I'm no working class hero, but I had imposter syndrome. I had this, like, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, there's been a terrible mistake, you don't belong here. Because I met all these, they were so confident, you know, people who went to private school. A lot of private schools polishing people up to be kind of confident. And that really came across. Yeah, so, um, um, what the impact it had on me, though, was I met Tories for the first time, and I did not go to Oxford enamored with the Conservatives, but I left with a fundamental loathing of Toryism. Um, I met you know, people I, I met now, people who are Tory MPs. <laughs> so I obviously knew them at the time. Simon Clark, uh, who was in the cabinet, you know, I knew him at university. I thought he was this ludicrous right wing figure at the time. And now he ended up in the cabinet. It's kind of annoying just watching these people help wreck the country who I grew up, not I didn't grow up with, I was 18 onwards. But yeah, it's, basically, I just met these people who came from very, very privileged backgrounds and often had contempt for people from less privileged backgrounds. Like they were full of class hatred, I would say. Uh, they were often really bigoted, very homophobic. Um, one of the most egregious examples I had of homophobia was someone who ended up standing as a conservative parliamentary candidate who was a close friend of Simon Clark, a guy called Carl Jackson, who's now a conservative councillor who called me a left-wing uh, F-A-G-G-O-T. Um, he said, what is once unnatural and immoral will always be unnatural and immoral. Yeah, it was just really crude stuff yeah i didn't like the tories as i said when i went to oxford so uh, but it made me i suppose i went from growing up in a working class community even though i'm not working class and that had a big impact on my politics and then i ended up jumping from that to a community to a very privileged world so i kind of saw two sides of the british class system and it made me i, I guess it kind of gave imprinted on me a real hatred of the class system and that's why I wrote Charles, The Demonization of the Working Class. I only wrote that book because partly I experienced, I, I spent, you know, having met, having grown up so closely with people whose lives were so hard and then meeting people from privileged backgrounds, he basically had contempt for those people. Um, that had such an impact on my worldview. And that's partly why I wrote Charles, The Demonization of the Working Class. Uh Gosforth 84, transport often seems the forgotten sibling in public services discussion, even on the left. Would you consider doing an expert on it with experts? Yes, very good point. Transport, particularly what, rail, I think we all know the argument there. I'm very passionate about buses. I've written about, if you look up Owen Jones buses, I've written about buses, um, bus provision, deregulation, disastrous, halving of routes as a consequence. Um, bus companies, obviously, you know, they rip people off. They get rid of non-profitable routes, which often serve communities, which uh, then become marginalised. Poorer people in this country can't afford cars. There's a significant number of households without cars. They then end up without proper public transport. Buses, yeah. So public transport generally, I think what Andy Burnham earlier was done in Manchester in terms of bringing them into public ownership is great. Um, I hear sinners, do you think that the consistent underfunding of the NHS is designed to encourage people to take out private health insurance? Um, so I'm really thirsty. I, I should wrap this up soon. I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Um, 
Oh, right. Oh, God, the 17. Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of Super Chats to go. I don't know how to turn off Super Chats. I'm just going to run through them. Okay, please stop doing more Super Chats because I've just realized the handyman's coming over in 25 minutes. Just talking out. I, I split with my long-term partner. Um, we're together for 14 years. Um, and uh, so I've been living by myself for a little while. Realized that wasn't going to work. The cats did not enjoy that either. So this lovely guy has moved in, but I'm just trying to make the room nicer for him so there's someone coming in to sort that out anyway don't give me any more super chats please um as david bowater here has pointed out um thank you david i'm sorry about that uh do i think the consistent underfunding of the nhs is designed to encourage people to take out private health insurance i think the um, i do think you know you saw with like the rail industry what the tories did is underfund uh and the the rail industry and then go oh look how terrible it is and that laid the basis for privatization and i think they do that with the nhs they underfund it um, and then go, well, it's not working under public ownership, is it? To see what I mean. So I think that's definitely what I would say. Um, CJ Mann, I have huge respect for your migrant advocacy. I'm an Indian living and working in the UK for a year now. Would it would have been impossible uh, when I was nearly shut out when e the UK was in the EU? Your nuanced thoughts, please. Really important point this. You know, look, I supported Remain partly because actually I saw the Brexit campaign is just full of anti-migrant hatred and bigotry. Um, you know, that's what they went hard on. Uh, oh, you know, Turkey will join and then we'll be swamped by Turks. It was that really ugly stuff, to be honest. But there is a fortress Europe problem where you get a European Union, which just prioritizes overwhelmingly white Europeans at the exclusion of others. There is a legitimate critique to be had of that. Um, and you know what? There is higher immigration now than ever, which is funny. It's funny because the whole basis of Brexit, all the big, you know, sell was, you know, control of our borders, keep up migrants. And they didn't happen. Um, and I welcome that. I think immigration is a fundamentally good thing. It's good for our society. It's good for the economy. It, you know, I would prefer to live, you know, I prefer to live in, in, in a diverse country than a not diverse country. Um, yeah, so I just think, um, you know, uh, that's a good thing. But, you know, we should have a critique of, of, you know, even though I supported Remain on balance, a massive critique to the EU, including a lot of his inherent racism and the way it's treated, for example, you know, the migrant, um, migrants and refugees, particularly if you look in the Mediterranean, you know, uh, you know, including contributing as a consequence, the death of refugees. There is a critique to be made. I think it's an important critique to be made. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I, why should we prioritise, you know, there is an argument, why do we prioritise Polish um, or Germans or French people over Indians? That is a legitimate point, I think, that you're raising. Um, have you seen the Labour files? Will you? Yeah, FSM the dog. I feel really bad about this because I know a lot of people like, why I need to do something on this. Basically, what happened was it came out during the Labour conference. We did the Labour conference video. Then we did the Tory conference video. And then the Tories descended into total chaos and crisis with Liz Truss and all the rest of it. So the problem is it just happened at the time of the Tory crisis. So we were just throwing all our time into doing videos about that and articles about that. I tweeted about it. I've tweeted about it. I've shared stuff about it. I should have done a video with Peter O'Born. I noted he's done a video on it two days ago with Double Down News. I did approach him about it. And then we were going to do a video. And then the timing is just messed up partly because of the Tory crisis. I'm really sorry. I should have. That is a failing. It's very important that I am scrutinized. Uh, so I'm sorry that I didn't do that. Um, and I do want to do it. It's just, as I've said, it's just the Tory crisis got in the way. Oh, wow. Hello. Um, Charles the Great and Powerful. Do you have a boyfriend? If not, do you want one? If so, do you want a third? I don't have a boyfriend. I did for 14 years. You probably don't know anything about him because I've always tried to protect people around me. 
uh, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, once we broke, when years ago we broke up and got back together, and the Evening Standard made it their main diary set piece. It was so ridiculous. It's like, come on, guys, do something else with this. More interesting things happening. Yeah, so it's difficult because I always, you know, so he's he never, you probably noticed, never really, never appeared in like tweets or videos or on Instagram. Just to protect people around me is very important. So I don't currently have a partner because I broke. I it was my, you know, it was my, that was my adult life. I went out, went out with someone between the age of twenty three and thirty seven, and now I'm all by myself. I'll do that again. Bright Sky, what do you th- why do you think conservatives and politicians support unethical policies? Do you think they are psychopathic or shaped by culture to be that way? They're not psychopathic, no. Well, some of them are probably, to be fair, but I don't think overall we should pathologize the right. Uh, they are, if you like, under capitalism, a rational political expression of wealthy and privileged interests who are trying to win in a democracy in which everyone has the vote and therefore they have to win over enough people to win a majority, if that makes sense. So I think... Um, you know, they rationalize, everyone likes to rationalize, or most people, unless you are a psychopath, like to rationalize what you're doing as being like a good thing for society and for you. Uh, so for, for society and everyone else. Um, right-wing people often genuinely believe that what is good for rich people is good for society. They believe that. They believe that privatization is makes for more efficient services. They believe if you slash taxes, that makes for more prosperity um, on the rich. I think these are contradicted by basic evidence, but I think people convince themselves of these things. Of course they do. I don't think it helps to just, you don't understand your opponent if you just caricature them. You have to understand what makes them tick. And I think these are genuinely, sincerely held beliefs that happen to coincide often with their own, I mean, they coincide with their economic interests, but you know, they're telling themselves rich people, for example, I'm getting richer, but that's good for everyone. Um, It isn't, but they think that. You know, that doesn't make it any better in terms of the impact of these policies, by the way. Uh, but I think it's important. What's your take on West Treating? I don't know much about him, but he might be down in my area for a few, for a thing in, in a few months that we've been invited for. Yeah, I mean, um, transparency. I've known Wes for a long time. Uh, yeah, I met him. When did I first meet him? 2009? Yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not friends with West Eating. I should just be clear about that. Um, so I'm not. Don't spend my time having drinks with West Eating. I, uh, um, my take on him is he is a he's obviously got Blairite politics. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not about. You know, I'm not interested in the content of his character. I, you know, got, got on well with Wes um, back then. Um, I've been very angry about some of the stuff he said, including on trans rights. And I've made that clear to him, actually. I don't think it's fine for me to say that. Um, And um, what he said on the NHS is absolutely unacceptable. Like basically more privatization, refusing to support real terms, pay increases. um, And, uh, you know, going on like tub thumping against the unions. Yeah, he's got right wing politics, you know, look. You know, I've, I've gone for drinks with Wes years ago in the past, got on perfectly well with him. Um, but, you know, it's not about personality. It's about people's politics and what the impact of their policies. That's what I'm interested in. He used to call me Tiny Trot. It's kind of a bit weird in hindsight, actually, to be honest with you. Um, let's just keep, okay, nearly finished. Adam Hanlon, if you were running a Labour Students' Union leadership campaign at Manchester, what would you run on to win? Also, Hassan is based. I love this land. Oh, you mean my book? That's very sweet of you. Ha- Hassan is great, Hassan Piker. 
oh my god if you're winning a labor if you're running a labor students union leadership campaign in manchester what would you run on to win it's tricky what i don't like about it is the apolitical campaigns which is just like events let's all get drunk guys it's obviously you should get drunk when you're a student and do terrible embarrassing things but i uh yeah i don't know i mean i'd fight for something i mean i don't know i don't know I shouldn't, should i really get involved in that way i'd like unions to student use a campaign more against like tuition fees and to do more to stand in solidarity with, for example, low paid staff on campus. I'd like to see more solidarity between, you get this a lot, you know, like cleaners who aren't paid a living wage. If they, I don't know what the situation in Manchester, but I like it when students stand up for cleaners, for example. And also, you know, academic staff vote campaigned against tuition fees increases. And now we should stand by them. Now they're getting screwed over, obviously, by the government. Um, but I don't know what I'd say specifically. Uh, people are asking about my views on the Harry and Meghan series. I did a video. I did an interview with Dr. Shola about that. So check that one out. Um, oh, good luck if you're running in Manchester, by the way. Um, Alan Garland, don't tell me what to do. Okay, cool. <laughs> I don't know what that refers to. Oh, I've got to the end. Great. Sorry about that, guys. I did actually really enjoy that. I hope I wasn't too meandering. <laughs> it was an experiment. And... Um, but it was really interesting. Uh, actually, we should do more of these. I mean, I might need to hone it a bit because um, I've gone on for an hour and a half and I did these very long rambling um, chats. But that's, you were great. These questions were really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you, everyone. Um, we've got lots of videos coming up this week, every day, essentially. Um Okay, I'll email Peter Oborn. Let's see if we can do a Labour Files video, because I do keep saying we should do that, and I haven't done it. Um, and, um, yeah, we've got loads of videos coming up, and um, we'll be back in the documentary shortly. I've nearly finished my actual book, which is good. I know I've said that for a while, but my book will hopefully come out in about a year. Fingers crossed, guys. Certainly what my editor wants to hear. Um, but, yeah, um, do press like, press subscribe. Support us on patreon.com for us, Owen Jones 84. I know the cost of living crisis is biting, so only if you can afford to do so to help support and keep this channel running and the podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, do leave a review because we're nearly up to a thousand reviews, but I'd like to reach that. So if you've got any time on the, if you type in Owen Jones podcast, if you leave a review, that would be, uh, that would be fantastic. I'd really appreciate that. All right, guys, uh, that is enough for me. Um, I will see you all tomorrow with the next video, but thanks for taking part in this little experiment. It was great and you were great. Lots of love. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, hold on. No, let me just quickly do all the super chats I did. Kieran Buckley, Fraser McKinnon, Avner Buzaglow, Jao Casto, Matthew Faustini, Henock, Emil Gerted, David Browater, Mark Atkins, Alex Nash-Thomas, Philip McCracken, Nineteen Angian, Liam Bailey, Mark Empus, Captain Coconut, Gareth Groundswood, Stuart, Tom Thon Fredo, Beetle Greg 07, Owen Garland, The Big Question Podcast, I Hear Sinez, Oscar Cook, Admiral Awesome, John the Potato, Admiral... Alexander Troop, Goswell34, CG Man, FSM is the dog, Brightsgate, I, Adam Hanlon, Owen Garland. Yes, guys, did it. Thanks, everyone. Lots of love. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.